0: Well, okay, hey, no, let me just. I t- have a question. I have a question. Sure. You. Is the recorder on?
1: <laughs> yes. Make sure the recorder's on.
0: Oh,
1: recorder. senior moments are not cool.
0: Yeah, that's right. Oh, well, golly, that
2: just Chris, so I, when you talk that.
1: I'm listening to that uh,
0: podcast, and I'm like, I remember all of this. Where am I? <laughs> Did he cut me out
2: with my audio that bad? <laughs> Yeah, it was just a. Uh, I think it was a solar flare. Cut it out. No, we're good. Uh, the Skype recorder going.
0: We're good. Are we sure? We are sure.
2: Hey, welcome to uh, Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. I'm Paul Gillette, as always, and I've got uh, Chris Palomarez and Mr. James Heidi Ho Lincoln.
0: Greetings and salutations.
2: Yeah, there we go. And tell you what, we are going to get an update from Sarah Kelly today on her film project, the independent film Model Citizens. So welcome, everybody. And Sarah, thanks for your time.
3: Well, thanks for having me
2: not a problem so you were not into the full editing mode the last time we spoke since then you've been needy i guess in both audio video is that where you've been devoting your time
3: yeah it's um it's been a long process of post production since may but um we finished audio post production in a studio in Burbank California on friday And we've been working on color correction for the last couple of weeks, and I just today got the final replacement images for color, so we're getting really close. I've seen the um, rough of the movie poster, and it's all getting very, very close to being complete.
2: Cool. Are you going to sell movie posters?
3: Um, I hadn't planned on it. Um,
2: <laughs> there are people that uh, put them in their train rooms, put them in hobby stores.
3: It's pretty cool. The designer, who the graphic designer who put together the movie poster, did a great job. It's not final yet, but it will be on the DVD case. So anyone who's a Kickstarter backer who will be getting a DVD, will actually be able to uh, get a miniaturized version of the film poster, and, and a couple people who pledged in the last Kickstar- Kickstarter will get a copy of the poster, but um, if there's more demand, I suppose I could make some more.
0: Yeah, I mean, the one thing I would say about that is if you made it as a special thing for people who backed the Kickstarter, that might irritate people if you made it available generally.
3: True, and that was, there were a lot of concerns now that we're moving into distribution, and and I don't want to bore people silly, um, but in terms of rights and in terms of keeping things special for people and making sure that, um, for instance, um, DVDs are not widely circulated, but they're available to the people who backed the campaign and are uh, people who will be thanked for their participation.
2: At this stage, Sarah, once this much is done, so you're waiting for color corrections to come back?
3: Well, I just got them today, so I'm waiting to put the disks into my computer and and crossing my fingers and hoping everything looks beautiful. So um, we're into the real uh, computer-specific, real heavy technical details here, but hopefully everything's good. Tom Parrish, who did the color correction in Austin, has been excellent. He's really worked very closely with me to get everything perfect over a number of weeks, going above and beyond, and uh, Barry Lawson the um, re-recording mixer has done the same with sound and we hit the studio last Friday all day we were eight hours in the studio he does work for um, tv shows so he's a real pro and he's worked at that studio before they do a lot of network tv post-production there and it was really great to be able to see um, and hear the film on the big screen and take a look at it in a bit more of a a more final version and was able to get some uh, last minute critique and criticism and change some of the audio there. So he, he really took the lead in a great way there and I've learned a whole lot in the process.
2: Okay. Now when you guys were doing just the uh, looking at the raw video and the embedded sound on it and so forth, you start, what, working to you've got a concept and you start looking at all the, the raw and picking out the pieces that fit the storyline or, or where you want this story to go. Is that how you start boiling it down?
3: Well, that's a really good question. Um- We're past that. At this point, we were just looking at the final sound or listening to the final sound. Um, But back, I believe, in the beginning of May is where I started the real heavy editing. Okay. And um, the process, you know, I was shooting for about two years, so the process was... A little daunting, <laughs> to say the least, at the beginning, okay. um, because I had a whole lot of footage. I still have a whole lot of footage, and I've said this from the beginning, and, and my apologies to all the people who I did interview who will not make it into the final film. However, um, as was announced in the last Kickstarter, I'm going to be creating a a separate DVD called For Modelers Only, which will include the full layout tours and full interviews and lots of lengthy material that wouldn't really work um, for a more general audience for the Model Citizens DVD. So that will be available for people um, who are interested in it and who, you know, some people, it seemed during the last Kickstarter campaign where that was one of the rewards, um, were more interested than, in that than in the film. And I can certainly understand that. And a lot of people will be getting both of them. But it made me feel, and it still makes me feel a lot better about everything, realizing that everything. Um, for the most part, will be put to use. No no footage has been lost. I have kept everything that I've shot from the beginning. So these great interviews that I wasn't able to include in the film um, will be included to some degree in, um, the four modelers only DVD. So that's an, a nice extra and there's more freedom to that. We're, you know, I don't know how heavy we want to get into distribution, but I won't have to worry about the rules regarding distribution in terms of, uh, violating the rules of film festival, um, submission and having, um, distributed information. Uh, some of this material ahead of time i don't have to worry about that with the extras dvd i can just kind of have fun and put it together and um, create some lengthy pieces that people can skip and scan for um, depending on what their interests are so that's a really nice thing Um, i can talk more about the process of how i was able to to edit the main film though i've been talking for (laughs) at length but i'd be happy to to talk a little bit more about the process of of editing it down.
2: Well, sure. No, please do.
3: Okay. Well, so I had a
2: lot
3: (laughs) lot (laughs) of raw video. So the thing that I had to keep in mind, I mean, my background is in journalism, and I wanted to make sure that there was a coherent story first and foremost. So that had to lead the way for my editing process And there are a few different things that we've been talking about in previous podcasts and concerns about making sure that it was coherent and understandable to people both inside and outside the community, while at the same time being respectful of those in the community and the big schism that we've talked about before between people who are toy train enthusiasts and people who are serious modelers not that the toy train enthusiasts aren't serious about what they do but as we all know that there's a there are some people who have very strong feelings about one or the other um i did interview people who were members of uh three railer clubs as well as model uh prototype model clubs so there is some overlap but i've had some debate um Along the way, f- with people who said you can't, you can't do this, you can't cover both, you can't um, tackle toy trains and model uh, prototype modeling in one film. That was the big challenge, as expected, and I think I accomplished that in the edit, in ex- explaining enough to people who aren't familiar with the hobby about what these two worlds are about and where the overlap may exist and creating kind of a bigger picture context for both. And so I was walking kind of a fine line, making sure I was respectful to both sides, sufficiently explanatory, and at the same time um, broad enough so that people who don't know the hobby can understand and appreciate it. So I, I had a lot of... Um, obligations in the edit to make sure that, uh, I served all audiences. So hopefully, um, you know, nobody feels too left out, but, uh, it was a challenge and people told me that along the way. And and I was not surprised to, to realize that that was a bit of a challenge.
0: Oh, yes. (laughs) Uh, Because that's what I was thinking as you were saying it, you can't do that. Not in an hour and a half. It, I, and if you're able to pull it off, I mean, I have no idea. So I, you know, if you're able to pull that off, that you know, kudos to you, because well, that's a very hard thing to accomplish. I
3: know, I know, and I know that not everyone will be perfectly pleased, but I do think that I walked the line. Um, the sound editor Barry Lawson, who's a train guy, he's a modeler. Um, he said I pulled it off. I know he's he's fairly close to the project, so. Um, I, do, I do think I I don't think I'll annoy anyone. I don't think I'll annoy anyone to a great degree. I think I did sufficiently address both sides. So uh, we will see when it comes out and um, what the reception is. So I, I'm trying to be realistic about it. You know, maybe at some point I'll do a film about just about toy train enthusiasts or just about modelers. But for now, uh, we have kind of the big picture.
1: You know, I wonder if it's going to come across to people on the outside as maybe the Hatfields and McCoys,
3: to some degree, possibly, possibly. Uh, because
1: they're they both segments are really alike in many ways. It's just the vein that they're passionate in is different. just you know, I, I'd say by by maybe a, an extra rail,
3: <laughs>
1: and and there's some philosophical differences, but there there's equal amount of passion. Involved on both
3: of them. The thing that was interesting in the first edit, um, and this is what I did in the first process, I, I diligently went through every interview, scanning and organizing content by theme. And it was amazing to me how many people from different worlds said the same exact thing or something very close, very similar. In my initial very, very rough gathering of footage, there were in sections, there were like six or seven people from different worlds who said virtually the same thing. It was pretty remarkable. So there are a lot of common themes. I think that I interviewed enough people that I did capture most of these themes because there was so much overlap. And that made it Um, easier to edit because I was able to follow a coherent storyline based on themes that, that arose from the interviews.
1: Well, it'd be really funny if you could finish off another person's sentence with a completely different person. You You know,
3: know. (laughs) you know, at first, at an an earlier edit, I had, I had some of that. And I think this will make it into, Uh, for modelers only but that sort of thing where people are are basically i could do that kind of edit where people are basically saying the same thing i didn't think it was appropriate um, for the main film but there will be some kind of interesting very funny asides for the extras dvd that people will probably chuckle at a, a lot more than you know there's there's a lot less of that in the main film, but there's a, there are some really interesting juxtapositions that um, I hope to include in the uh, the extras DVD.
1: I, I definitely think it'll be an outtake sort of thing where, you know, people that are in, into the hobby will we'll look at it and be able to laugh at it because it, 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 we'll understand it. You know, it's just like, oh, yeah, we never talk because they're in the, um, you know, this, this sort of style of railroading, you know, but we never talk. But, you know, with the similarities, I I think it would be just hilarious. And, you know, most modelers or enthusiasts, I should say, will probably get it.
3: Oh, yes. And I don't know how wide the appeal will be for that extras DVD beyond the world of model railroading. But I think the people who are in the world will be very entertained by it.
2: Are you planning then, when you do this uh, second DVD that's more inclusive of, you know, the greater amount of film you shot, Of putting that on Model Citizens, your website where people can buy it? You're going to commercialize it?
3: That's a really good question, and I think Jim brought it up earlier. There's the concern about making sure that I don't undermine the exclusivity um, of the Kickstarter backers, but. um, Well, with the
2: time, you could do it on a time lag basis.
3: Yeah, I will do that, and those weren't offered with, uh, with any exclusivity, so. I think that people who are interested in in pe- the community can give me feedback who are interested in the um extras DVD I mean there was not a um you know that the main DVD has a you know I will be giving out I will be sending out DVDs that are signed that are packaged that are kind of uh, ready to go as as commercial products. These will be a little bit rougher. So perhaps if people are interested in downloads, or maybe I can break it up into sections so that people can uh, review certain sections, certain chapters, certain themes. That might be a possibility. I haven't fully explored distribution there. Everyone who um, kicked in the I think it was seventy five dollars for that at the in the last Kickstarter. Campaign. We'll get a full DVD with menus and everything, but that's a really good idea to maybe make some of it available uh, in a slightly different form through the website. And I will let people know <laughs> through the e-newsletter and through the site um, how I plan to distribute that.
2: Okie doke. When you uh, look back, you said May you started uh, the huge process of you know waiting through the film and stuff. And started boiling it down. Do you have any uh, specific challenges, stuff that just cropped up and all of a sudden you go, oh, crap, and things you had to work through?
3: Well, I think that this is is kind of par for the course of any project, and, and this is my first documentary film. So there were, in the editing process, there were times where I thought, oh, I wish I would have gotten this or I wish I would have gotten that or, you know, there those inevitable things. I knew that would happen, not to an extreme. There was never a moment where I sat down and thought, oh, I blew it. <laughs> I didn't get X or Y or some huge thing. Uh, but there were a lot of moments where I thought, oh, I wish I would have spent a little bit more time just shooting that particular just steady on that on that layout, or got a little bit more of this operation session, or the the one thing you know some of this was unavoidable i was I did a lot of interviews at the the big e the Amherst show in january um, and the people who ran that show were very nice and they set up a room for me and uh were very kind and helpful in getting me. Uh, I I was nicely accommodated. Um, I got there and the room that I was supposed to shoot in was, I think above a heater or some kind of heating unit. And it was like, boom, 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 boom. So I had to kind of move around and find another place to shoot. So I ended up doing a number of interviews in an information booth in an agricultural building at a, (laughs) in a state or a regional fair complex, so um, I ended up having to do. There were some of the best interviews I did. Some, some real, you know, some sit-down interviews. They happened to be in a in a pretty ugly room, um, so that was you know a short trip. I was there for a couple, two or three days, and I got some great people um, at that show. Um, there weren't a lot of great. Places to conduct interviews. I think this is the kind of one of the things I ha- hadn't fully thought through before um, before I started the project. Is you know, model railroad clubs are loud, <laughs> and that's great, but it's also tough to find quiet places to conduct interviews so sometimes especially when i was traveling when i was on the east coast i went to new york and new jersey and pennsylvania again in march i did some shooting out in the field Uh, but in clubs it was a lot of clubs it was difficult to find a quiet decent place to conduct an interview and i think that if i were to go back again um, i would have maybe found different ways to conduct interviews that were quieter places, find ways to meet people outside of clubs and beyond. I mean, it was a lot of scheduling and a lot of coordination to begin with. And everyone who I've worked with so far has been really helpful and great. But I found that a lot of the layout tours were, were great and they'll make it into the For modelers only DVD, but a lot of the audio was really tough, and a lot of the video, since I was following people around, was not as you know not as steady, not as clear as would have been um, necessary to do to to cover those at length in the main film. So um, some logistics I. You know, there was a lot of run and gun photography for the, most case, for the most part where I would show up at a club and just, you know, take the tour, or follow people around. And some people in some clubs were more equipped and some were less equipped for interviews. It was tough. It was a little bit tough planning how to actually do the interviews, who to talk with. And to some degree in this community, I don't know how much more well-planned it could be. Um, as you know... People who there are a lot of members of clubs. Um, it's unpredictable who will show up, who will be running trains, what kind of trains will be running, what will be happening at the time, what the weather will be like, whether we could be outside or inside, what the timing is like. So there was a lot of uncertainty in terms of um, what to plan for. The colorist, the man who in Austin who color graded and corrected all, all the footage, he told me he said every single Uh, piece every single clip and there are hundreds in the film had different nature different characteristics different slightly different lighting slightly different conditions you know the clubs a lot of the clubs had fluorescent lights maybe a different few different kinds of lighting ambient light from the windows so there are a lot of different conditions that I don't know how much they could have been controlled for so there was a bit of a wild card though in the editing process
0: yeah, I would tend to think that the um, the whole lighting thing is, you know, every, just like every railroad's different. Every place they have, this, you know, somebody there is going to have a great idea. Oh, we have to do you 5,000 Kelvin bulb, and we need this many bulbs. Everything's going to be different, because everybody, particularly in clubs, anywhere, they're going to have different ideas on how to do it best. Or they can do what they can afford, which may not be great.
3: Well, it was interesting because, you know, I... In this project, I kind of had to break some some of the big rules when it comes to documentary uh, photography. And I think it's appropriate to the subject matter because it's different. And you know the nature of do- documentary is it's not scripted and it's not something that that you go into knowing exactly what it's going to be, and you don't know exactly who you're going to shoot and how that, that's going to go so that's that's kind of that's kind of par for the court. but I think that I, I think that it turned out turned out well. it was you know, a different situation at every single club. There was more that I was going to say, and I will remember it <laughs> in a minute. <laughs> bear with me. So, but yeah, there are different, there were different lighting situations and and that's, you know, that's the nature of the beast. Definitely.
2: I'm confused because you said something a minute ago. And so we're taking a step back here. You had the original Kickstarter. Yes. That was completed and kicked off. I thought I heard you mention a second phase of a, a Kickstarter and it was relative to people who had contributed when you started talking about the separate DVD more for the enthusiasts or did i just mishear it
3: yes that was something that i added on to the second campaign as an additional as an additional reward so there was a first production campaign okay. uh, back in the fall and that was to fund travel archival video footage drives this very uh, heavy drive that i have all the footage on sure a few other things post production was for primarily it it didn't cover everything but it covered some of the fees to pay the composer uh who did the musical score uh the re recording mixer who mixed the final audio and and the actually the colorist was something i hadn't even Um, accounted for I hadn't budgeted for um, so that was an extra at the last minute I also had some other post-production expenses that came up but basically that second campaign was to cover the production the final putting together not the shooting but the putting together of the film
2: okay because I've been to your site and I did not see anything that linked me to this second phase
3: to the Kickstarter yeah Yeah, because it's over. (laughs) It was, uh, I think it ended at the beginning of May. Oh, okay. So those go for 30 days, and that's kind of the model that they use to kind of like your pledge at a public radio or public television. They have a limited time so that people will be motivated to pledge during the time while they can and, and get their rewards. But it was interesting. A lot of people, I was giving away some additional rewards during this last campaign, just kind of a weekly drawing. And a number of the people who I I kind of randomly picked to send things, they said, you know, <laughs> don't bother sending me something. Uh, you can use my name in social media, but I don't need the, the uh, just, you know, save the money. And a lot of people toward the end We're saying just, you know, get it done, put the money toward toward finalizing the film. So that was kind of a really nice thing that I think made this campaign different than a lot of Kickstarters, that people were very interested in the subject matter and seeing this film finish. And from what I've heard from other people who have done Kickstarters, a lot of times, it's mostly about the rewards. I did offer that for modelers-only DVD as an extra benefit just during the second Kickstarter, and that was probably the most popular item that people selected. I think a lot of people were much more interested in that than in a, in a T-shirt, for instance, or a cap.
0: Okay. Now, uh, on how many terabytes of film... <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I've got a 16 terabyte drive, Oh and it's, I don't know how, f- it's maybe halfway filled, so I've got, with raw footage, maybe about 8 terabytes, so it's a lot. It's a lot mm. of footage, and um, it, it will... It will be archived. Nothing will go to waste. Nothing will be destroyed. It's also helpful. I mean, a lot of people along the way, when I was conducting the interviews, said, "Oh, can I have a copy of this? Or can the club get the footage afterwards?" And uh, of course, I said yes. And then I, uh, and I thought, boy, how am I going to do this? So this is another way of, of, um, making good on my promise to get people what I told them I would get too, and other. Uh, incidental things, other additional footage that they'll they'll probably enjoy.
2: Oh, I think it's a great idea. I love when I have the opportunity to watch raw footage because you can almost watch it and just you can pick up the the videographer's uh, thought process. And you sit there and you watch it, and you go, "This is interesting. This is now." I think it's cool.
3: Yeah, you know that's one thing that's a really good thing to bring up that was one of the things that I tried to avoid in the main film is I didn't want my voice on the camera. I didn't want to appear and um, in the rough, I'll probably, there'll probably be a little bit of audio at least of me asking questions, which might, might be helpful to people to see, you know, how people answered and what they were responding to. So a little bit more of the behind the scenes. I know people, people like that kind of thing.
2: Excellent idea. So you're going to, well, let me just ask, how much more work do you have to do?
3: You know, for the film itself, not that much. It's almost finished. I've gone, I have the, I like I said, I have final audio, which is really simple now. I just have to marry it to the film. Depending on how the, the last color correction comes in, which I'll know later tonight, it should be a matter of marrying those and then going back and, you know, there are a lot of tweaks that I have to do. Unfortunately, because of, I won't get into too much detail here, because of the different computer systems that the colorist and I were using, not everything translates perfectly. So I have to go back in and do redo titles, text, um, what's called lower thirds, which is IDs of people, that sort of thing. You know, just check each frame, make sure it came in correctly. Maybe sometimes there are missing frames I have to fix. So it's little nudgy little details that I have to fix right now. But I can't really change anything significant because the final audio is finished. And I have to make sure that that audio matches the video and that uh, it's perfect frame for frame or else people's voices And lips won't be in sync, so it's really important that I don't, I don't do anything to it that's uh, other than making sure that it all came in correctly. So I'm very close to having that finalized, getting together a menu for the DVD and getting those duplicated for the Kickstarter backers. But the main thing now at this point is getting a package together for film festivals and that, you know, while the film is mostly finished at this point, now all these things are, are coming up that I hadn't, you know, I, I had thought about, but now I really have to turn my attention to a different kind of thing. Like, for instance, you know, the graphic design, the posters, um, the electronic press kit that goes with the film to the film festivals, and that's um, information about the film, credits for the film, um, information about who's in it, some stills, a trailer, um, a few different things that have to accompany the film to festivals. That's generally, um, for most festivals now, you can upload it. It's all, all electronic, so it's a slightly different process. That That is something I have to focus on. As well as doing those, getting those DVDs produced for the Kickstarter backers.
2: Okay, now, but I'm all right. So again, I'm going to take a step back. When you're talking about the new color, yes, describe that. When you're looking at it and you go, "Wow, this isn't good color." What does he do to make it better?
3: That's a really good question. I mean, he uses software. Uh, called Da Vinci Resolve and His Own Eye and His Calibration Tools. And uh, Tom Parrish, who's the colorist, um, has been working pretty closely with me. He's, he wants to, to train me in uh, doing more color myself. Usually, um, you know, usually people don't do multiple roles on films, even independent films. So I'm trying not to, I'm trying to resist the temptation to do everything, so I don't know if I want to actually do color correction in the future. Um, but for instance, that's like like we were talking before about you know I'll go into uh, a club and it will have some kind of crazy um, fluorescent lighting that turns everyone a little green, or there's a lot of like maybe yellow in the image, and what color correction does is it it makes the color. More true to life and more consistent. So those frames that are a little muddy, that are, that are a little yellow, will look more vivid, more realistic, um, more consistent. So it, it's a it's a kind of a time consuming process, and, and because of the way, like I mentioned before, that this this was shot in a million different conditions. Um, not everything is, you know, if it was a Hollywood, scripted Hollywood film, you, you don't even notice color correction. You don't notice color because everything, all the conditions and all the shooting locations were controlled. But in this case, you know, it, it it will not, not everything will look absolutely the same. But Tom Parrish made sure that every frame looks as good as it possibly can.
2: Okay, now I understand
3: yeah, you know, some- it's funny. That's something that I hadn't even thought about at the beginning. As It was something that occurred to me like halfway through the project, like, oh, you know, I don't know if I want to do this. I think maybe I should call in a, a professional who's done, done color correction to do this well. I mean, I can do it in the, the editing tools that I use to some degree, but I'm not an expert by any means in color correction. And I'm really glad that I called in someone who is.
1: I was just going to say, and there's some layouts out there, that the emphasis is on the layout. All the lighting's on the layout and not on the aisleways or where people can sort of talk and have a dialogue. So, yeah, I could see where the challenge is pretty immense in conditions like that.
3: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's not just the look of things, not just lighting, but, but sound and the difficulty in... in just, I hate to say it, but just kind of walking around after people holding a camera up with the gear and everything, you know, some of the f- frames got a little shaky because it's it was just kind of physically hard um, to do that. Sometimes um, some layouts like San Diego Model Railroad Museum, um, there are some layouts there. They're great, but they're you know you're you're diving under layouts, you're ducking. You're really moving around, going upstairs, going down. So there was, like, a bit of a physical challenge. I'm not, you know, I'm younger than most model railroaders, but I'm still, <laughs> I'm still <laughs> old enough to kind of have a bit of a struggle trying to, to move around with equipment. So there were a number of challenges that I hope that when people see the film, they'll understand, like, oh, this isn't, you know, this is real. This is, like, real life, and it's not perfectly stable because... <laughs> I was chasing a train around or something like that. So um, I think model railroaders will understand.
1: Well, there's also a pretty good humor about, you know, some of the layouts where everybody pops up like a mole out of the scenery. <laughs> you know, it, 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 that's pretty whimsical in itself. I mean, yeah. I mean, we're really serious about the hobby. We're really into it. But come on, that when you stand back and just think about it, it's kind of funny just watching all these guys sort of pop out of the hills like moles, you know
3: it's great the one thing it's it's funny this is um this is probably what happens in all kinds of interviews but but you know i was cautioned and warned by people all along saying you have to get this right and you don't you know don't portray us the wrong way and don't forget this and make sure you keep that in mind um but in the interviews people really had a great humor and that was something that that i really was heartened by it you know when I got kind of too far away from talking to the people and too into my email and responding to people's concerns and questions, I just had to kind of go back to the footage and realize, okay, you know, people have a good humor and a good attitude and model railroaders by and large are a very smart uh group of people. They get it, they understand it and people were, um, had the right attitude and were interested in explaining the hobby and making it entertaining and making sure that people understood it. But there wasn't that sense of like harsh judgment or, you know, kind of the the concern that you can see on some of the message boards and things where people are very rigid about things. But people were very nice and, and very eager about making their hobby, uh, making the the fun of their hobby clear to people who don't know it very well.
2: I don't know any rigid people. Do you guys know rigid people?
3: No,
1: no, no. <laughs> yeah, that's no. right.
2: <laughs> yeah. that have been talking to the wrong, wrong people, Sarah. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. You can get some pretty stiff-necked individuals that, you know, to me, just lose lose sight of why we enjoy uh, model trains, but...
0: I resemble that
2: yeah, you resemble that.
3: <laughs> but they were the people I interviewed the main interviews for the film had a very good sense of humor and they were very self deprecating while at the same time being respectful of the hobby. They were clearly not taking themselves too seriously and I, I think that's universally appealing to to anyone who, who will see this film inside inside the hobby or out.
2: Yeah. Um, an example of that, you know, the uh ultimate DC C throttle we did, Chris with yeah. uh
1: Bruce. With Bruce Kingsley?
2: Yeah, I shared that at the store. I pulled it up and it, it illustrates uh what Sarah is kind of talking about. And after I, you know, gave the intro to what he was doing and I kind of did a little fast forward to the where he's actually going around his railroad. And there's a guy standing beside me and he goes, He didn't blow the horn for that for that crossing. <laughs> and I looked over at him and I said, That's your takeaway from this? It looks real. And your takeaway is he didn't blow the horn? <laughs> well he didn't, he didn't blow the horn. I said, You understand this is all pretend, right? But it's just what, what Sarah alluded to. Some people can get lost in the, in the detail and forget that it's, that it's yeah. a pretty amazing hobby. Yeah, definitely.
3: Well, and a few of the people, especially on the prototype side who I interviewed, admitted that they're a little bit crazy about being true to the prototype <laughs> but then also were able to make fun of themselves saying, you know, I,
2: I, A little bit crazy. A, okay. <laughs>
3: a little bit over the top. I understand that. I understand how people uh perceive it from the outside and and I think that's makes makes them appealing characters, definitely.
2: Oh, yeah, that that's true. We I think you could say that for You know, hot rodders, model aircraft people, whatever. Yeah, we all get lost in the hobby for you to lose the perspective.
0: I mean, just because you come up to something and say, oh, let's see, an 18 inch drop crab normally has a three inch drop, or is it two and a half inches? Now, now, in in O scale, that's what? Like five thousandths of an inch? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Tell me, human hair. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. Does <laughs> anybody really know that? And then people will look at it and say, you know, that's a three inch drop. That's not a two and a half inch drop right there. That's not right. like <laughs> really, you just pulled out you just pulled out a set of micrometers, go away. Yeah, that's right. The uh,
2: Oh yeah, I am so looking forward to this uh this film being released. Um uh, Looking ahead, so when will it uh, get its debut?
3: Well, that's a really good question. Um, I had hoped that I will be at the big NMRA um, convention at the end of August. I'm not sure if this is going to come out before then or not. I'd hope to have DVDs to distribute to some of the Kickstarter backers by then. I'm not sure at this point. Um, that they'll be ready in time. Um, But soon, um, probably in the next few weeks, those will be ready. Um, Maybe, depending on how quickly the DVDs can be turned around, the final film will probably be wrapped next week. Um, But, uh, you know, those little nudgy details that... Filmmakers probably would rather not spend their time on. It's It's interesting. It's an interesting process. But now it's a lot of administrative and, uh, you know, approvals of art and that sort of thing. But um, so the, the DVD will be ready in maybe about four weeks. The film will go to film festivals maybe in about two weeks from now. So when... Just so,
0: just so everybody understands, that's August
3: fourteenth and twenty Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So the some of the big deadlines for film festivals including you know, Sundance South by Southwest, I think is in November, which is in Austin, Slam Dance, which is part it's a kind of a mini Sundance. There are a few um, big film festivals. There's um, one in um, Minneapolis, Saint Paul. There are some some of the Kickstarter backers and members of the community have sent me um, film festival information for their own communities. So there there are a number coming up right away. So that's the first priority, getting those submitted. And, um, you know, I'll have to wait kind of for a few weeks to see how they do if they're received well um, or if the film is received well at the festivals. Um, I've had to educate myself a lot about how distribution works and how film festivals work in the last few months. And I've, I, I to what degree I understand the process uh, these days, it's not as simple and straightforward as it used to be. It's like, I don't expect to have Paramount sweep, swoop down and buy the film and distribute it. Um, it's a lot more fragmented, like a lot of media today where, the film festivals are for exposure and um, there are a million different ways to distribute. Um, there's, for instance, now there are a lot of things coming out on Netflix. You can distribute through iTunes. You can distribute um, through maybe PBS. A number of people have told me, actually f- the whole time I've been doing this project, how about public television? Um, how about um, kind of uh, independent uh you know distributors. How about Netflix? How about these smaller venues and combinations of different distributions? So it won't be one thing. It won't probably won't be like one distributor will um, handle it. But I'll probably have different ways of making the film available, whether it's um, through a limited theatrical engagement or through um, on video on demand or through public Uh, broadcasting or any number of different combinations of things, and somebody alluded to this earlier, those windows, those different timing windows, so you might have um, for three months the film is available one way. For another three months it's available another way. So it's going to be a little bit of a patchwork because it's a small project and um, the nature of the beast these days is so fragmented. But I will let everyone know, through the e-newsletters and the website, how they will be able to uh, review it um, as soon as I know.
2: Now, when I go to, is the best place to go to your your blog spot or to the homepage to be able to sign up for those email blasts and uh, updates?
3: Well, on the main website, modelcitizensmovie.com, there's uh, one of the main um, tabs on the top is the sign-up. Up for the e-newsletter, and that's that's where you can sign up to receive those. And that's my primary place where I've been updating people about uh, what's coming up, what's you know, and that's definitely where I will let people know about distribution, so uh, they'll be able to actually uh, <laughs> see the film when it comes out. So on the on the main site, I just pulled it up. Model citizens. Um, one of the main pages it says sign up up at the top and if you click on that that'll bring you to the sign up for the e-newsletter yeah i'm not sure if if the, when this will be coming out but um i will uh <laughs> i'm hesitant to talk to, about the nmra convention but i'm very much looking forward uh to meeting some of the people who've been involved throughout the campaign there i was there last year but i think there's a little bit more awareness now too
2: Oh, yeah. Golly, I would, I would imagine. Uh, is that the one where? Up in the northwest?
3: It's in Portland.
2: Okay, yeah. I would like to road trip that, but I'm afraid that I'm going to be transitioning from the desert to the swamp. So may not be able to make that, but I would Welcome like to. Welcome back to
1: humidity, that. Paul.
0: Yeah,
2: there you go.
0: I could theoretically go, but it's quite a... What's that? I said I could. I have the time to go, but it's quite a- yeah, it would be quite the trip for you. You could take the train.
1: Well, you know, next year over in Indianapolis, Paul. That's that's 2016.
2: That's right up north of me. I can. Make that's that just happen. right up
1: north of you, and just not so far west for.
2: I think um, we'll, we'll pencil that
0: in and meet there. 26. So 2017 is Orlando. When's Orlando?
2: Are you going to have another uh, project by then, Sarah?
3: You know, I was thinking about that as you guys were talking. I was thinking about and I've, I've talked about this a little bit how sad I kind of am
2: at, that it's over. That
3: it's over and thinking about the future, the next few like you're talking about the future conventions and I'm, you know, I'd love to be connected with this community. In a way, the, the, the intense phase is over. We'll see where it goes, but I think um, my next project will probably be a little bit different. It's been such a thrill to be part of this community and to learn so much about it and to work so closely with the community, and I'll kind of miss being part of it. I kind of feel like I've been an honorary member of the model railroading community, and leaving that behind will be a little bit sad.
2: Maybe Chris and Jim and I need to buy you a train set for Christmas.
3: (laughs) Indoctrinate me?
2: Yes, so we can get you uh, addicted to this.
3: Oh yeah. People ask me that. They've asked me that since the beginning. I'm so afraid to take on any more hobbies. I mean, I think the I mentioned this probably in the previous podcast. I have I tend to be obsessive about what I'm passionate about, just yeah. like most of the people I've interviewed or all the people I've interviewed for the film and I definitely relate. I mean, I see the same personality types, Paul. I think you mentioned, you know, remote control, enthusiasts of remote control vehicles and planes and and different communities, hobby communities, communities of interest of all kinds, that there's that passion there, and that's what attracted me to this project. And while I'm not a model railroader, I definitely understand and, and experience that obsession. And in a way, I'm a little afraid to learn to get too close because uh, if I have one more passionate obsession, I don't know if I'll ever be able to, <laughs> to get my work, my f- full-time, my paying job done because it's so much fun to get into these worlds. And I try to be good about channeling my interests because I totally understand the way uh, most model railroaders think because I think the same way.
2: You're living in Southern California, right? Yes. Well, see, guys, she could be at Barstow to Hatchapi. Any number of those places on a short drive.
3: I could see it, you know, I could end up, it could take over my life.
0: <laughs> well, there's a big difference between whale fanning and model wheel. wheel. That's true. So,
3: but both you know, are covered in the film. They're, a little bit, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of variety. I mean, that's one thing that I found really interesting in the process is, you know, it wasn't just people who are interested in toy trains or prototype modeling or operations but it's people who are interested in the modeling but not running trains people who are interested in operations but not the modeling people who are interested in very small little subsets and times and places you know uh, uh, there's a section of the film where people talk about what they model very specific time frame very specific geography and they're not interested in anything beyond that so there are a lot of little tiny niches that everyone knows about, but it was interesting to me to see them side by side to see people talking about what specifically interests them and what doesn't interest them in the hobby.
0: did you end up talking to Jack Burgess or no?
3: oh yes okay. he has a he's got a big chunk in there, so ah, yes. there's a section on Jack Burgess and it was interesting because I interviewed Jack Burgess and I interviewed other people who happened to mentioned jack Um, so we have jack representing himself and then other people talking about him unprompted they just kind of mentioned it and you know tony custer is talking who's uh, famous in this community mentioned something about his friend who models only august of 1939 and he didn't have to you didn't have to say who it was. It's like, oh, I knew exactly who we was talking about. As a matter of fact, here's footage of that layout. So that was a fun process. And it will be of interest to people in the community. Some of that sort of thing might be lost on people outside of the community, honestly, because it's so in-depth there. So that, that'll be interesting to see how it's received beyond the community. But anyone who is a follower of model railroading will certainly understand that. And then somebody else in the film mentioned, oh, some, you know, was talking about Jack Burgess and said, oh, he models September of 1938 or 39. It was like, oh, well, he's off by a month. No, no, so, no. So it, it was interesting to hear the lore and hear people talking about their own community and their interpretation of it. So it, it was really fun hearing people talk about what makes them tick.
0: Now you didn't, by any chance, talk to Jared Harper? He's in the. No, I did not. No, he is one that he models a very specific location on the Santa Fe, the Alma, the Alma branch on the Santa Fe, and he honestly does not care about anything. Now, very vocal. He's a, he's a great guy, great modeler, does what he does very well.
3: Well it sounds and, like and, Michael Gross he models part of a Santa Fe railroad and it's a very specific branch line and a very sp- specific geography and timeline. Yeah. And he said he he says on the film he says I really could, don't care m- much about any <laughs> anything modern or anything that does not work in this little frame that I've created for my hobby. And,
0: and in many ways this the reason they do that is, I can't afford, uh, it's actually a very good idea.
3: Well, also there's that obsessive mindset is not only is it about not being uh, able to afford everything, but not having the time yeah. to get into depth on such a broad area. Um, you really have to focus or else you're going to drive yourself crazy because the nature of a obsessive enthusiast, is, as you guys probably know and I know, is that you need everything related to, your very specific niche, and it's hard to keep up if your niche is too too wide or too broad.
1: Well, yeah. keep up with time or, or finances. It's like there's a lot of neat stuff out there, you know, oh, and yeah. you only have so much time and so much space to kind of store it in.
0: Well, I, uh, if, if, I think you know that I work. I'm, I'm a conductor for the Boston Commuter Rail. The engineer that I was assigned to for quite a long time. Young guy, 23, model railroader. And we have conversations about he has a, a large collection of things. He doesn't really have much of a layout, but he has a lot of model trains. And he tells me, yeah, I've got eight, eight, Boston and Maine, or something. I mean, it's either eight or 12. And they only had eight. He has them all. He has every single one. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. They either had eight or they had six. See, is it? And I'm like, don't you have more than they actually had? Well, yeah, but they're in different paintings.
1: It's like Pokemon. You know, we gotta collect them all.
3: Or Beanie Babies (laughs) from many years ago.
0: Uh Uh-huh. And there's the great meme that get your your kids hooked on model trains now, because when they're older, they'll
1: never be able to afford booze and drugs.
3: (laughs) I haven't heard that one. That's (laughs) a new one to me.
1: This is a new wise tale. All right.
2: Well, anything else, Sarah?
3: I think that just about covers it. uh, any
2: interesting stories you've been able to share some of the interesting situations people you know without naming names and stuff but as you went through this summer any kind of uh memorable events
3: well you know i've been editing since since uh may heavily editing so my last trip was to uh i mentioned this I think it was in March, the end of March, to New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, and uh, did a little bit of f- following some rail fans around, and and um, followed up with some people actually who I'd met in Amherst and, and interviewed. We were out in the cold, and it was snowing, and it was uh, it was like the endless winter in the Northeast, as, <laughs> as you guys remember. So, oh yes, yeah, um, good times. That was that was interesting shooting out in the snow and not being adequately. Uh, Covered for that, uh, clothing-wise. I mean, I've, um, you know, I have to say that my back has has really <laughs> given me a lot of problems. Before, you know, lifting the heavy equipment and uh, sitting in the editing chair for hours at a time has been a little bit physically draining. I, I was kind of uh, surprised that it was as physically uh, taxing um, as as it has been. But you know, I think that. Um, Model railroaders will probably uh, relate to some of the the physical, just the kind of the demanding nature of working with your hands and and bending over and being hunched over and trying to look through a a magnifying glass and to see real detail. I mean, I really admire people who have been doing this for a long time or people who are, are pretty advanced in age who are still doing the work because it's, it's, it was exhausting for me to just cover it and people who are at clubs and who are work doing this fine work for hours at a time. Uh, it's really exhausting and other people who, you know, one of the main themes of the film is you've got to have a passion. You, you've got to have a hobby. You've got to have something that keeps you going or else you get old and you die. And people who have this passion, people who are continuing to work do fine work, work closely with their hands, work on operations. It really keeps you young. It keeps you alive. And it it allows people to stay younger than they and more capable and more able to do the kind of work that other people their age probably can't do, people who are sitting there watching TV all the time. You know, it's just a – Night and day, you know, a lot of people in the film talk about or a few people in the film talk about people they know who retired and uh, just kind of got old and died because they didn't have this passion. They didn't have this um, this thing, this obsession that kept them going, that kept their brain developing, kept their their hands able to move and their fingers nimble and the ability to duck under layouts i mean it's 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 a real life-affirming sort of thing that i found pretty heartwarming in the editing process so you know you, it could apply to model railroading just as it could apply to a number of different kind of passions and hobbies but the ability to just kind of stay engaged and stay uh, active it's so important
2: i think you're absolutely right absolutely not letting it get me down. I'm putting DCC and sound in one of my canes.
1: <laughs> you should put some LED lights on there too. Yes, and an LED lights on, on my
2: walking cane. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Gyro light facing the rear, so cars will see me walking ahead.
1: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know. Got to step a, up your game there, Paul.
3: Great idea.
2: Oh, gosh, you know, So when I got my coffee cup, I took it to the store because we had other customers who would come in with your T-shirts on and stuff, Model Citizen. I had some people eyeballing a cup. Well, where'd you get that? And I said, well, I said it was a Kickstarter. You know, I explained what you were doing and so forth. And so if I were back on the, the store's display railroad, I had to watch. I'd set the cup down. And people would be maneuvering. I finally brought it back home. (laughs) I'm sorry. There were people there with larceny in their hearts. Oh, really? going to get my coffee.
3: Well, if it really takes off and there's an interest in it, I guess I could get some more mugs and other things made.
2: You know, it, it never hurts. You know, people buy anything that is related to their hobby. You know, somebody made... Knuckle couplers into keychains, and we got a bunch of these things in. And I'm going, no one in his right mind is ever going to buy this, because they were like two inches long, maybe about as big around as your thumb. A knuckle coupler. They're all gone. So yeah, people will buy that kind of esoterica. I do.
3: I'm. It's funny because I'm now in kind of marketing brain as I as I move into to kind of publicizing the film and getting it out there and distributing. And it's not, you know, it's not as fun as shooting and creating a film, and it's certainly not my – I mean, I certainly appreciate it, and I, I love engaging with people who are interested in the film and in the hobby. Um, it, it's not my intent to be a marketer, but uh, and it's certainly not my strong suit, but <laughs> – if there's a demand, I mean, it's a tight enough community, and I've heard from so many people that if people are interested in something, they can certainly get in, in touch with me through the website or basically through the website or through the newsletter. Those are the two big ways to get in touch with me. And if there's a big enough demand, I'd be happy to to, to get some additional items.
2: How about a Sarah Kelly bobblehead?
3: You know, I don't know if I'm up for that.
2: We could put one – you know, guys, you know what I'm talking about, an engineer's cap? One of those – No, no, no. I
3: don't don't think puts that interest. No, no.
0: No, but I bet bet they would buy a Jack Burgess head.
3: Yeah, I don't think that people are – I'm hoping people aren't going to be that interested, that I'm not the focus. And I don't think – I mean, for the most part, I don't think people care who I am. But um, it should definitely be – Part of the community. No
0: offense there, but I, you know, I think yes. you know, they, they'd rather have Jack Burgess yes. or maybe Tony Custer. Trading it,
3: cards, maybe trading cards. Trading cards, yes. Things <laughs> like that. That's a really good idea.
0: Yeah. How about uh, you know a you know a Tony Custer rookie card?
3: Yeah, there you go. <laughs>
2: Craig Biscayer card.
0: Yes, there you go. I'll
3: have to use a baseball consult. I don't know enough about baseball, but I think it's a it's a great idea
0: it in bubble gun. Whoever, whoever wants a you know George Lucas bubblehead, Steven Spielberg bubblehead. They don't want that. They want Han Solo bubblehead. Yes, exactly. Person in the film. It's all about marketing.
3: Yeah, yeah. That's see. not not my strongest suit, but it's definitely something I'm trying to uh, be proactive about.
2: Okay. See, that's where Chris can help you out. That is his.
1: Yes, I am. I am a brand manager, and a I manage
3: brand brands. Manager. <laughs> cool. So. Very cool.
1: We we can scheme up trinkets.
3: <laughs> yeah. So, you know, partnerships, it's all about partnerships and exclusives to certain communities and groups. And model railroading community is, is unique. And I found that in the process, I think I've talked about this before, that with Kickstarter and at different phases of the project, I realized that, you know, working with this community was so much different from like when I would read or I would try to learn about, um, you know, take tips and advice for how to market to communities. A lot of the advice didn't really fit the model railroading community because it was unique. People are a lot more passionate and connected in this community and we're looking for different kinds of things. I mentioned earlier um, when I was talking about Kickstarter and a lot of the projects, you know, for the most part, in Kickstarter, um, most of the people who donate to to or pledge to particular projects are on part of the Kickstarter community but in the case of model citizens, almost everything has been outside the community. So most of the people who pledged to the campaigns, this was their first time or their only experience on Kickstarter. They weren't part of that community. They were passionately involved in the model railroading community. So it's a lot more focused and a lot more intense, uh, a community than a general interest uh, group to market to. So, you know, the pluses is that people, include the fact that people are much more dedicated and people are, are very, it's a very emotional and personal thing for a lot of people I've heard from. But at the same time, it's a smaller group too.
1: You know, it's really true. On the the Athern Facebook page, I get RC brand managers tell me, how do you get such a response to these posts that you do on the Athern page? I'm like, I don't know. It's just the model railroad community is more, active and they're more vocal and they're more involved i guess than some of the rc guys you know
3: so well it's definitely interesting too in terms of like the nuances of social media like the fact that the model railroading community is very active on facebook um twitter is still pretty big but in a lot of other communities there are different social media tools that are much bigger um, you know, each community has its own quirks and its own dedicated spaces. So, the, you know, social media is a little bit different. Everything's been a little bit different. So I don't think that I could apply many of the lessons in terms of marketing that I learned from this pro- uh, project to other projects in different communities and different different target audiences because it's just it's unique. Sorry yeah.
1: guys, I'm swatting mosquitoes right now, so if no. I'm quiet, that's what I'm doing.
3: but um yeah, the unique nature of the community has been a blessing, and it's also been a big challenge too
1: It's tightly knit, so for better or for worse the the word's going to get out.
3: Yes, and people will be pretty vocal. So I'm bracing for that. It's, like I said, it's the the best, and it's wonderful having that passion and that involvement. It's also a little bit scary. The next project might be a little bit broader. There's a media-oriented project I'm looking at that will probably not be so intense in terms of interpersonal reactions. You know, I felt very responsible to the community since the very beginning for obvious reasons. You know, I knew nothing about it to begin with, to start. You know, people brought me into their clubs and they gave me tours and they, you know, tried to explain what it's all about. And it's a very, it's been a very personal process. I think that's unique and my next project will probably be a lot less personal.
0: And I think, too, uh, Model Railroading on one of the other podcasts. Well, you, you talked to Lionel, Lionel Strength. He says on... Uh, his podcast. He said, it's the interesting thing about model railroading is it's a lot like MI6 <laughs> because you know the person you could be talking to could be a model railroader and you don't know and they will not tell you unless they know you're if they're if they know you're a model railroader. If I walk up to Michael Gross, oh he may be different, but uh, I walk up to Michael Gross, he'll probably he would probably introduce himself. You know, not you know, he sort of knows me, but doesn't. He would probably, you know, oh, I'm you know I'm a movie star. How you doing? I'm Michael Gross. He's not going to say, hey, I'm a model railroader. (laughs) That's just not going to come up. You know, uh, it was fascinating, um, you know, like with um, uh, Rod Stewart. Um, You know, he doesn't bring it up. He's certainly not embarrassed of the fact that he's a magnificent modeler, but he doesn't bring it up, you know, with the rank and file. And I very specifically remember him being on whatever show it was. I think it may have been Jimmy Kimmel.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. It was Kimmel.
0: Kimmel, and some people in the audience laughed, and he said, What are you laughing for? I'm very proud of that. But it's not something he would he would never have brought that up in the interview. It doesn't matter. It's just we're very secretive because normally of the way people react.
3: I found that in this process, when people ask me what, what it's about, what, and I say, you know, this is a documentary about model railroading, all, people will react fairly extremely in one direction or the other some people will be like nobody you know people take it seriously but some people will scratch their heads and say what <laughs> like what what does that exist and then other people will say oh that's really cool i mean just when on friday when we were in the studio in la you know at this post-production house um some a couple people producer of a tv show came in they were doing a tour of the studios and and we mentioned uh what the project was and this guy who's a producer of a TV show said, oh, that's really cool. That's, you know, I love, you know, I love that museum down in San Diego. So you never know what the reaction is going to be, but it's always, it, it's never going to be boring. It's always going to be extreme interest or extreme confusion.
0: Yeah, and I, I think the general, because I remember early on you were saying you were, you were having trouble getting into the community. There was a, a lot of mistrust. Yes. As you get on older and more cynical you just like you know if somebody had said like you said but the person saying what does that even exist if he said that to me i'd say let me guess you don't have a hobby do you You probably go home or you go to the bar or you go home and you watch tv let me guess that's probably what you do and the people who say hey man that's cool they have a hobby they they get they may not be into trains but they're into
3: into something
0: uh, into something they're passionate about being creative
3: and that's it sounds so simple. Sounds like such it could sound like a silly thing, but it's really not. And that's a really good point and that's made by at least one of the well, more than one, a few of the interview subjects in the film. You know, it it makes you think or it made me think as I was listening to the interviews, of course. You've got to have a passion. You've got to have a hobby. And if you don't, what are you doing? <laughs> What's the point? I mean, to 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 be extreme about it, you know, the idea of not being passionately engaged just seems like a kind of a dull life.
2: Sure, two-dimensional life.
3: Yeah, it's a creative enterprise no matter what it is. It's like that, that's something to be proud of. It's not something to be a... Um, Shy about?
1: Well, it's not only fountain of you, I think, having a hobby or an interest, but it also just beyond just giving purpose to you know waking up in the morning and being excited to get up and work on something. It's it it, it just aligns people together. You make new friendships. It's just a good quality.
0: And I found that I, I'm in a niche of the meat. Uh, I'm one of those people that, you know, if, if you saw me, when you talk about toy trains and three rail and all that, I'm one of these people that my eye twitched. Just, yes, yeah, so I'm on the far end of the extreme. I I design and, I you know, with 3D printing and all that other stuff, I do things for the Total 48 community. And just recently, I had a phone call. Some a friend of mine, who I met through a pod, introduced me to someone else, who's like one of the but one of the, the founders of Proto Forty Eight. Said, "I've wanted to talk to you. Thank you so much for what you're doing." And I'm like, ah, okay. I mean, it makes me feel good that somebody who's like is really one of the movers and shakers behind what I do. Is thanking me for what I'm doing, but there's a, a lot of different reasons why people do things in whatever portion of the hobby that they're in.
2: Well, let me uh, let me interject something in here. Give Sarah a break, Chris. How is the uh, the ready to run sound doing? Is that taken off?
1: Well, I, I get a, a lot of feedback from from different guys. Um, it's like the bulk of the the hobby is pretty happy with just the basic sounds of a prime mover ramping up and, you know, having a couple horns to choose from. They're not really into just mixing and matching the exact three chimes forward, two chimes backward horn sound yeah. To, they just want it to, you know, sound good. And I think the RTR sound is really kind of addressed that. So as far as like the price point, they're, they're more price point focused. They're like, hey, if it sounds good, and I could run it and have fun with this thing, this is awesome. So I think it's really addressed a, a portion of the hobby that has been demanding something like this. And granted, we're not going to pick one over the other. We're, we're we're branching out into three different segments because you, you can't really cover everybody with one product. You know, it's you you got to have this thing that does that's more beginner or um, it, it's more just. Maybe budget conscious, and then you have something sort of intermediate that's budget conscious and has some specific detail, and then you have the 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 entire enchilada. You know, we're we're not overlooking anybody. We're, we're trying to get as many people kind of circled in with uh, having fun with you know the, their love. Well, it's on target.
2: Did uh, Sarah? Did you talk to any of the manufacturers?
3: Um, I talked to Stacy Walters. Okay, Walters. That's right. I um, remember that. Yeah, at the show last summer. She was very nice, and um, I did talk to – I know, Christopher, we had hoped to connect. We never got to connect at length. Yeah. We talked talk to someone else at Athern, but not representing Athern. Oh, okay. Those are the main manufacturers that I talked to, but um, I didn't want it to get too industry-heavy. Um, industry heavy. um I have to say, you know, thank you to the uh, NMRA and to um, you know some of the industry groups and, and who were helpful in funding the Kickstarter uh Kickstarter campaign. There was a uh hobbyist uh the industry <laughs> I'm blanking on the name of the industry, but the, they helped support the campaign. And um, I thank everyone for, I really have to make sure that I don't forget to thank everyone who who was an individual or a group who was part of the Kickstarter uh, who made this possible too. So, you know, walking that fine line there, nobody's asked for dramatic, for control of the project or anything, but there was a lot of, you know, industry and, and organization support through the NMRA as well. Well, if there's ever
1: a follow-up, I'll, uh, I'd certainly like to work with you on uh maybe interviewing or discussing the model trains, you know.
3: Excellent. Well, we'll definitely stay in touch.
1: You see, that might
2: be – people are fascinated by the manufacturing aspects of what you guys do, Chris, and, you know, all the other manufacturers, the the bringing together from concept to components of manufacturing. When I mentioned that, you know, you and I do the podcast, right, well, do you know how they do this? How do they, I mean, they, they want that. They're really interested in how models are conceived and then, you know, take, sh- uh, take shape, come to fruition as a uh, product on the shelf. So, yeah, if uh, Sarah does anything like that, again, there's a thirst for knowledge along those lines out Do you there. know the
3: show How It's Made? Yeah. Maybe something along those lines yeah down the road. It,
1: it's not a bad idea honestly <laughs> there there is some really neat processes to this uh business, and just just having to go out and finding the closest thing that you can to, of the real locomotive or the real freight car is a challenge and you might be in some guy's backyard. this is the only boxcar car that has a single door and this guy kind, kind of in and roof and it, it and you're out there like trying to get permission to, to measure it, you know, <laughs> there, there, there's some really interesting things that, that go into the research and development of these things. You that
3: know? would be a great topic for, I don't know if a full length, but documentary, but definitely some kind of a special feature.
2: You know, we could do a video podcast.
1: I've been waiting for you to with tell me. Uh, I'll
2: uh, tell you what, Sarah, Check your schedule. Let me know when we can. Now, do we have to go to China, Chris? Um,
1: no. What, what I'll do is uh, I'll, I'll, I'll call up somewhere in China on Skype and have them give you a tour, and then, then no one has to pay any sort of like uh, plane ticket or get their visa. You know.
2: Okay. Well, maybe we just do a uh, Kickstarter, send Sarah over, <laughs> let her film send me to it, China and we'll do uh, live communication as you model railroading on the
1: Yangtze River.
3: That's a great idea. Or, there you go. or
1: the world's longest freemo layout on the Great Wall of China. That, that would be pretty. <laughs> yeah. That would be
3: very cool.
1: We could do it
2: like Patterson. We'll just keep putting modules together and grab the one on the outer camera and run it forward into and seemingly going And hope go there's no wind. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah.
3: No, I like it. I like it. You know, it was, it was, yeah, I know you, that rail fanning was not the the focus here and not what we're here to talk about but um going out to the train yards like i did with some of the enthusiasts some of the weathering people took me out to where they go to shoot um the cars that they replicate on their models it was fascinating i wish that i had been able to spend more time with them and get a little closer to the trains i learned a lot about train operations there um but i was kind of Anticipating, I guess, being able to get up a little bit closer. So uh, maybe if you guys can um, pull your, you know, your expertise out and your contacts and get get special permission to go to these um, train yards and just, you know,
1: I, I, I got actually three segments, but I'll tell you them after Jim mentions what he was going to talk. I kind of cut them off there.
0: Go ahead, Jimmy. Sarah, you do realize I work for a railroad, right?
3: Yeah. Well. You work for the the T commuter rail. I
0: oh, work for the commuter rail.
3: Okay. Not, yes. Not the T.
0: Okay. Well, it's the T but it isn't. We run we we run the commuter trains for the T. The okay. T shops it out, so it's the T kinda only wants to control all of the, the subways. You know, the subways and the buses and stuff like that. the T controls that directly. We're a separate in. Well, you have an
3: inn. Yes, we should, we could definitely look at some special projects. I don't know. Does that is there a network um, beyond the Boston area where you you know people who do similar jobs in other parts of the country who you could connect with? Yes, yeah.
0: Right. I, I mean, I I know someone in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Probably could weasel my way in other places, but around here. But, I mean, for instance, you can, the fastest a train goes in the United States of America is 150 miles hour, And that happens to be 15 minutes away from my house. You can actually stand on the platform and touch it. As, <laughs> not, I'm not saying that's <laughs> wise. But you could stand on the platform and touch the thing as it goes by at 150. Um, and uh, there's, there's two places in the United States that it does it, and one of them is in Mansfield Mass and the other is just south of Providence, Um, and and that's Amtrak. And uh, I have – generally, I can get you around, whether you have permission, whether you have permission, another thing. A lot of times the permission is you're not supposed to do it, but I didn't see
3: (laughs) You know, I got a a fair amount of that in this project, yeah, but uh, I wasn't really crawling around train yards either for – Right. The most it,
0: part. Because a lot of times The official line is no The difference is with like T with Keolis I could probably get you in touch With the people that would give you the actual Permission to do it so that you could Crawl on the trains and you could crawl under Them and you know as long as somebody's There with you I could probably be... Find that you know but you know It's a commuter operation so it's different mm-hmm. It's not like it's not like CSX it's not like UP it's not like BNSF, where they're running, you know, 120 trains a day, you know, through a particular location. Probably, I do know people that might get you, might be able to get you that act. Technically speaking, they're not going to say yes. Although, in your case, it's a little different because you're not really an enthusiast. And I know that doesn't make any sense. Does it make
3: it better or worse?
0: <laughs> it makes it better. It actually makes it better. Okay. Because. Uh, you're they're not going to expect you to get all googly eyed about this thing <laughs> and
3: and jump in front of a moving yeah. train and
0: yeah uh, although unfortunately there's been a lot of there's been several accidents as of late so they may say well yeah you can do the you know, x amount of insurance you know if you're going to do it officially, yes uh, they'll let you do it but you know we want to see a, an insurance waiver of yeah. five hundred thousand dollars and I don't know if that's how much it is but they would tell you. I've heard about that. You know, we just want to do a little bit of filming right here. Ah, yeah, no problem, but you're going to need to get X and Y. And, you know, there's only particular insurance companies that will, you know, actually sell it to you. And blah, blah, blah,
3: blah. Well, it's definitely something to consider for the future. It doesn't have to be a full-length proce- you know, project either. It could be like a web series or um, something kind of like an, a serialized sort of project i mean the the nice thing about as you guys know today there are so many different ways of consuming and creating media these days and and it's really allowed for us to be flexible and to Uh, be proactive about delivering people what they're interested in so and the overhead is a lot lower so you know i would love to if there's a need or an interest in doing something and focusing closely on something like that i'd be definitely interested in talking about it
1: hey sarah i i got three things that kind of come from a manufacturing standpoint um the first one well let's break it down into sort of three categories there's structures there's Locomotives and rolling stock, and then there's sound code. Now, it's really what I think is interesting is like how, like Jimmy Simmons, comes up with these ideas for his laser-cut structures and the textures he designs and all that, and his research and going out into the field and capturing these things. And same thing with the the model trains. It's a really neat process of trying to find them where they exist in the United States, and then trying to get permission to go measure them. You know.
3: That that is fascinating to me, and that's one of the things that I had hoped to spend a little bit more time on or get into more depth in the film. I wasn't really able to do that to an to that kind of degree, but the whole detective work, the hunting, yes. for the that's fascinating. The I, think it, I think it would be it would be a great project. And, that would be a lot of fun.
1: You know, Matt Herman from E.S.U. he has to do the hunt as well, trying to find working examples of these locomotives somewhere where he can record them to put them onto a little, you know, solid state chip that goes into all of our locomotives, you know, and he's out there on the side of this thing, rocking back and forth trying to record the sounds these things make, you know, so there's an interesting life story behind the people that actually do this. And also the subject that, that we do day to day for, you know, a living. I I, I think those three, and then also like what, what Jim is, He's an engineer for a railroad. I mean a lot of guys just don't know what what goes in a day in a life to be out on the road and you have to get up at odd hours and you know different trains different different jobs working with different people there there's a lot of life story to this thing and it's on the industrial side of it.
3: well, I find that fascinating and if you would like to talk about something along the lines of the Sound Hunters or something like that, I would love to talk about doing something like that.
1: Sure. Uh, I, I think Matt Herman from ESU uh, it would be like one person that I would really recommend because uh, he, he posted something out on social media where here's a, pic- here's a video he captured on the side of this locomotive somewhere over in like indiana or something and it's swaying from side to side violently going down the tracks he's trying to record it you know <laughs> yeah the, I, I don't think people cool. quite understand the the effort that that goes into replicating these things to the degree they like
3: a lot of action too i can picture it now i think oh yeah
1: oh yeah definitely
3: climbing all over trains doing detective work i think it's fascinating
1: yeah, it, it's sort of like a uh, those History Channel sort of, you know, how it's made, or the, you know, some of those those hunter type films, you know.
3: Oh, definitely! I could totally geek out on that.
0: And then you'd all you'd always have to uh, in in insert the part about, oh man, I forgot to measure X.
1: Oh yeah, that, that bullpen.
0: <laughs> because because you never measure everything. You, you, always you, you always
3: forget something? You always have to go
0: forget, back? Yes. And sometimes that's not exactly feasible because the car's moved. It's not there anymore.
3: Oh, yeah. You, lose you know, your I opportunity. have opportunity.
0: I have access to railroad cars that are by themselves. They're not going to move. They're totally, you know, it's a Sunday, so they're not going to get moved. It's not dangerous. And, um, you know, sometimes it's, you know, you go, you measure a bunch of stuff, and you come back, and I'm making a 3D model of something. And I realized I forgot to measure. I don't feel like driving back there. Or now there's too many people around. And it's just, it's not that, you know, sometimes you're doing things. It's just, I don't want to get asked questions. It's not that I'm doing anything wrong. I'm not doing anything dangerous. I know it's perfectly fine. I don't want to get asked any questions. So I don't want to be bothered. Because <laughs> you know, people nowadays, like, what are you doing measuring that? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm yeah. Model, I'm making a model like, of it. Really.
3: Nine eleven. there was, yeah. you know has been so much paranoia about... I feel that any time I'm shooting in some kind of a quasi-official place. um, And it's... You know, you probably blend in a little bit better. I'm a little bit more conspicuous being female. So... But if I had a guide... Particularly,
0: you know... Particularly in some of the areas. Well, I mean, with with either Amtrak or with, our, with us. No problem. I mean, I even uh, the one thing about my engineer is he knows a lot of the higher higher up people in the in the companies. Amtrak and us, the, the Keolis, are way more lenient than say BNSF, CSX, or NS. NS, I think, maybe better than it used to be. But a lot of the very large corporations, they're, because they're self-insured, they get kind of repo, you know, about liability. Something. Yeah, li- liability. I don't, you know, I've never approached them to do something officially. You know, I think if you sign every waiver on the planet mm-hmm. and they know you're there and what you're doing, then it's, it, it's different. But sometimes getting that level of access can be, if you get the right guy, mm-hmm. they'll be like, yeah, sure, no problem.
3: Isn't that always the way? I used to do prison reporting, and it was always a matter of getting the right the right guy to give me access, and, uh-huh. and, and sometimes that person would get in trouble after the fact. But
2: <laughs> well, they could put a new spin on model citizens.
3: Definitely, this has been a lot more fun than prison reporting. I have to say. Yeah,
2: model prisoners.
3: Yeah, yeah, well, introduce it to, you know, that would that would probably be a great program for the prisons in terms of, you know, taking taking a complete aside here, uh, getting people focused and getting people interested and engaged in s- some work with their hands. So maybe that's a whole other <laughs> sideline we could get into in the future.
2: Sure. Conversation getting out of control. Okay, sorry, I've taken, taken <laughs> <an laughs> on yeah, digressing badly.
3: Trying to link prisons and model railroading is a little bit of a leap.
0: Oh, I can see it absolutely.
3: <laughs> so, Jim, have you walked the tunnels? Have you been underground, going through some of those passageways? And or does the commuter the, does the commuter line not really use those kind of the subway tunnels?
0: No, we don't use those. Yeah, the tunnels that we use are or you know we'd go through a few tunnels but nothing like that no i've n- i've never been no real desire i'm not my my engineer he's oh uh uh i'll be right back i'll be right back. sorry i got to go i forgot to let my dogs in
1: <laughs> sorry <laughs> <laughs> i think they got him paul <laughs>
2: i think so yes
1: <laughs> they someone snuck into his house and just like uh you know scared them or something i don't know
2: well yeah i think he left him out in the yard so, <laughs> you know here it's almost dark here and i would not want small small animals in my backyard right
0: now the coyotes are out but uh no there's there's, there's no tunnels uh nothing like that there's the um i have gone over the connection between North and South Station. I don't know if you know the whole saga about that, but there's no direct way to get from North to South Station by training. It's, huh. it's a bizarre bizarre little switchback that you have to do. Big brouhaha because they were supposed to have put it into the big gig and they just didn't do it. And now that all those tunnels have been built, it's not like they can put that in. <laughs> Small thing.
3: Mm-hmm. Just a small thing.
0: But, no, there's not too many. The system doesn't have too many tunnels. There are a few, but nothing nothing like the,
3: the subway system. Well, there are definitely a lot of angles for sh- shorter features or web series or special DVDs or downloads or whatever, so definitely worth exploring.
1: I definitely think the ind- industry side will, will appeal to more of the, the Model railroad Road crowd or the enthusiast crowd. Um, just there's a lot of curiosity about how these things come to fruition. Oh, know? definitely. And, 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 and like I said, there's a quite a few that have some pretty interesting personal uh, background stories about how they actually went out. You know, like like for some of these structure kits, like you you learn a little bit more about architecture and mm-hmm. things like that. You know, I think that think that'd be pretty cool.
3: Well, learning from I mean, going back to Jack Burgess. Um, as, as most people in the community know, you know, he, He is a stickler for detail, and he will do extensive research, and he will visit the location uh, that he's modeling, and he'll take pictures. And, you know, he was telling me about finding out that a paint color was slightly off based on new research that he conducted, and he had to, you know, do some interviews and, you know, refer to some archival footage. And when he finds out new information that conflicts with, uh, what he knows, he changes it up. So, you know, that's a fascinating aspect of the hobby, getting that research. You know, the research could go on forever and ever to, to increasingly specific levels of detail, and that's fascinating. And you learn so much. I learned a lot through the process as well.
0: Yeah, there's a great quote in regard to research, and I can't remember what it is. One of those, Tony Custer would know it. <laughs> um in regards to, you know we'll, your, we'll
1: call him up right now, man
3: we'll, let's yeah there the you go. and ask him. <laughs> you know, you're yeah. mentioning Tony Custer brought up this uh I had lost my train of thought earlier when I was talking about breaking the rules in terms of reporting it, you know, shooting a documentary where basically the the yes. standard shot is that you know the interview subject looks kind of at the producer slightly off camera, kind of slightly off to the side. In this case, pretty much everyone, you know, a lot of people ask me, where should I look? Should I look at the camera? Should I look off to the side? Should I look at you? Where should I look? Um, But a theme started developing where people were looking right at the camera. And after a while, I stopped mentioning it. I stopped saying, you know, can you look over here? And it was funny because a lot of people, um, well, Tony Tony Custer's a little different because he's so used to talking in front of cameras. He's so media savvy. Um, but there are a lot of people who are used to giving presentations. There was one person I interviewed out here in my area who had been a professor for about 30 years, and they're so used to giving addresses and talking that they kind of took over the show. <laughs> in one case, when I interviewed, um, this person who had been a professor, he, I had kind of primed him and said, Oh, just, you know, this is going to be kind of a casual interview. Don't, you know, don't worry about, um, being formal. And then as soon as the camera started rolling, he, he said, he looked into the camera and he said, this presentation is going to be about X, Y, and Z. So there was kind of an interesting, um, quirkiness to the interviews where a lot of people kind of took it their own way based on kind of their own understanding of maybe how they've watched train videos in the past or their own experience of talking at clinics or you know a lot of people were very media savvy and um, I think that's kind of one of the more interesting quirks of the film and the people who um, are featured in it, that they all kind of had their own take on, on how to do it. And it's very clear in a lot of the interviews um, you know, where they're coming from. So
0: I, I, I think, as you said, that has to do because the community is relatively small and the people that you're talking to are, or I don't know who everyone's talking to, but Jack Burgess and, and Tony Custer, they're used to getting clinics. They're used to getting up. In front of a bunch of people with a PowerPoint presentation and talking directly to the audience in regards to whatever they're talking about. Yes. And so and there's, a, there's a large quantity of people in this hobby who are used to doing, you know, they're used Definitely. to getting up. You know, I think in, in comparison to the the population at large, uh, there are far more model railroaders who are comfortable getting up in front of 100 people and talking to them than there are normal humans.
3: Uh, <laughs> I noticed the that.
0: I mean, the percentage is a lot higher, I think.
3: There were a number of people um, who kind of directed me when I got there, um, which is fine. And I, I went with it, and it, it made it a little bit of a different experience. But, you know, a lot of the model railroaders, like you said, they're used to displaying their layouts they've had them up for tours or they've had people through their clubs and they're they know they know how to give a really good tour and um you know that's pretty much what i experienced at a lot of the clubs and and sometimes they would say oh you know you've got to get a close-up shot of this and you have to do this and why don't you come around here and shoot this (laughs) and it, it was an interesting process
0: I think probably because, as you say, they know the layout better than you do. Oh,
3: yes.
0: They know where all the little, the scenes are, whereas if you're shooting outside, a lot of times things would probably be easier to see, because, you know, you're taking in the big picture and can say, oh, I want to focus on this detail and this detail. It's... Not the same. Whereas, if you're looking at the big picture on a model railroad, you're standing 10 to 15 feet away. You can't see it.
3: Well, that's a really good point. You know, somebody mentioned earlier, it might have been Jim, that you know, you have those narrow passageways through layouts, <laughs> and oftentimes, when I was walking with the camera, I was kind of blind and bumping into things. There's not, not a lot of room to move oftentimes, and some of those big picture shots are really hard to get. You know, very hard to grasp. The whole, the totality of a layout, uh, you know, the majesty of a huge layout, was almost impossible to capture in some in some places.
1: We have drones for that. We just, yeah.
0: <laughs> Whereas I think one of the layouts you talked about is the San Diego Club. You can do that there, although it's so huge, but there it's fairly unusual because if they're uh, designed to deal with large crowd. Uh, you can get a bigger picture there and even then you can't get the whole thing.
3: Well, and it's, there's the public space that's different from the inside, the layout right. space. Right. Um, so, you know, from the public side, oftentimes in the, the, the San Diego layout, um, and in a lot of other layouts I visited, there's glass separating mm-hmm. the public from the layout. Um, for obvious reasons so a lot of people spent a lot of time taking down glass panels and putting them back up so wow. it was kind of a pain for them but you know happily i was able to get inside a lot of layouts but still the, the quarters were pretty cramped i was in a few of those hatches you talked about popping out but <laughs> limited ability to move that's for sure
1: Well, what you needed is one of those locomotive cameras that Bruce Kingsley was talking about on the last podcast, right, Paul?
2: Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, probably you know five thousand dollars here or there. If you could get one.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely.
2: The uh, we've used, uh, yeah, not the the high tech stuff like Sarah has used, but. We've used uh, some of the better POV cameras to shoot uh, scenes there for the store's YouTube channel that I created, and they do well. But, yeah, Mr. Bruce uh, did, a, did kind of a notch better.
1: Yeah, the notch, uh, I, I like your pun there, Paul. A notch eight? No. Nope. Nope.
2: So, it's like your camera, Sarah, but miniaturized? Because he's in aerospace, And so he was doing uh, all these, I'm going to use the term gadget, and I don't mean it in a derogatory way, but uh, you just have to watch this guy's YouTube on what he did with the uh, putting you up close and personal on his railroad is great. I mean, good grief, he's got a telemetry car that senses when he goes around corners so it can... Increase the vibration and noise in the cab. So <laughs> we were talking about people being over the top. That would be. Well, a-
1: you know, he, he described it as a Disneyland ride. And I think that's a pretty good way to describe it to, you know, no one that has really experienced it before. But he, he places you virtually. Well, I, I don't want to say virtually. He, he, he kind of hates the whole virtual sort of thing. He, he puts you. Sort of in the driver's seat almost in as if you were in the driver's seat in a model train locomotive looking down the model track you know so it's kind of a cool take on on uh, um, uh, um, you know someone else's interpretation of model railroading you know
0: and it's interesting that the cab is in fact a model it's not
1: um, right it, yes. it
0: isn't a cab that he put into his basement it's a model of a cab that he built because yeah. he specifically wanted to use modeling techniques to build it.
2: Oh, I thought it was real. No, no, that's not real. an
0: that's not an F cab. If you listen to the if, if you listen to the interview, with, with, well, no, no. I said I thought it was a a real cab at the beginning. Oh, okay. oh yeah, no, so did I. I. I thought he, I I thought he. Had, You know, because some of the things he has in there, like priming, you know, you know, okay, you're going to turn the switch this way, you're going to prime it, it's going to make this noise for a little while, and then you're going to do this, you're going to wait for this light to turn on, and then you turn over the prime mover. I'm like, really, dude? Okay. Yeah, and he's published a couple
2: of updates, and the one I watched the other day, you can get uh, a better view of, Because it's half a cab. And, you know, with him talking, you can see it. But, yeah, it fools a lot of people. So maybe we should introduce him to Sarah.
1: Yeah, there should be some pretty cool video to be had out of that.
2: Man, I mean to tell you, that would be crazy. Of course, what did he say, (laughs) $14,000? You know, yeah.
1: But when you think about your entire collection as a model railroader, and you break down all the DCCs with sound and all that stuff, It, I think that's about the investment most modern railroaders have into their hobby.
2: I think you're right. I think that's a very accurate statement.
0: Well, a 23-year-old engineer, he says he's got about $22,000 worth of future-scale equipment. Really? Yeah, and he doesn't have a layout. He just has equipment. He just has locomotives. He is obviously
2: not married. He is is actually. Oh
0: no! He is married, and he has plans to buy every single B and M, MBTA, and a couple number of the New Haven RDCs that Rapido is going to come out with. He's going to buy every single one. You know, one of, you know, one of every single road number they make.
2: Like. He has a very understanding and supporting wife. Oh,
0: he, here is his his wife is when they were going to get married. It was her idea. He wasn't really into it. At, at, at yeah. first, it was her idea. She said, I want to go up to Conway Scenic Railroad. I want to have the wedding ceremony at the railroad yard. and then And then the reception is going to be on the dinner train going out to proper notch and he spent an extra whatever uh because he wanted to have 40 uh the f7 that they've got 4266 he wanted to have 4266 on the head end of that train and he paid the extra money and he ran it because he's a certified engineer so he could he ran his own wedding train but that was her idea everybody was like yeah you got you You got your wife to go along with us. He's like, "No, I didn't want to do it. She wanted to do it. She thought it was a great idea."
2: We have to get samples of her DNA, <laughs> and we have to propagate this DNA. Oh yeah.
0: It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the uh, you know, the wedding pictures, the wedding pictures of him, you know, in his tux and his wife were standing in front of the, standing in front of the, their wedding pictures were them in front of a knuckle of 4266.
2: <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. I'm a little more traditional yeah. than that, but
0: I still think it's a nice Oh, yeah. Touch. No, I mean, 40, because I mean, they've repainted the 4266 into the maroon and gold scheme. So it's the maroon, it's not being in blue, it's maroon and gold. And so, They keep it clean. It's beautiful. I mean, it's it's not like a ratty old everything else you get around here. Uh, You know, it's very well maintained, and it's a very classy-looking locomotive. Uh, You're right, you know. Get her DNA and clone her. Uh, There's not a lot of women that will do that.
2: Yeah. Well, when my uh, wife sent me a text the other day with a house address, yeah, so I could look it up on Zillow. She pointed out, and she said, there's more than enough space for you to have a model railroad. I'm not going, all right.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, was, well told, was it 3895 was my... Challenger Street? <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, 4014 Big Boy Way. That's <laughs> oh. yeah, okay. Just See, Sarah, just, you know, we're – reinforcing some of the stereotypes in your uh, film.
3: You know, when we were looking at houses last year, there was one house in the area that had an extensive garden layout. That, that uh, Oh, really? <laughs> that um I I'm not sure why what what the issue was with the house, but it, I did think about it for about 2 minutes how cool it would be to just kind of inherit a large railway, but you know, you kind of miss the fun of building it if you just get somebody else's
2: uh, every once in a while, there was a guy, I don't think he was in Phoenix, but his uh, he was a big Lionel collector. So he had a lot of uh, both pre-war and post-war 027-gauge Lionel. And it reminded me of the scenes in, from Frank Sinatra's collection. It's just a, like, hey, I'm going to build this two-car garage in the yard to put my railroad thing. And he was hoping to sell to a model railroader or a collector so he wouldn't have to tear it down because he no longer, he said, I don't have time for this. So I thought, golly, (laughs) that would be what I'd be looking for in HO.
3: It's got to be a tough sell, you know. For certain people, it would be ideal. For other people, it would be a deal killer probably.
2: Oh, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Well, people, what do you think? Are, are we yes. trying
3: the patience of even the more stalwart podcast listeners?
2: No, not, not really, really, but I just, uh, Chris has got to work. Jim's got to no, work. I don't. I don't. That's right. Jimmy doesn't. I just want you to be aware of it. We can keep talking. Sarah and I are just barely into primetime TV time out here. <laughs> yes, but wow. we have
3: hobbies, so we don't sit and watch. TV. The because...
0: Well... <laughs> Actually, I've been uh, while I've been recuperating because I'm not supposed to be doing very much. I've actually, <laughs> pretty sad to say, I went through the entire set of it. I I got Netflix, and I went through the entire seven seasons of Deep Space Nine. <laughs> um, so you know, interspersed with three D modeling for model stuff.
1: Hey, I'm surprised you don't get a Hulu subscription and watch like Tracks Ahead or something.
0: Yeah,
2: uh, all the
1: seasons to that. Is that on Hulu? Yeah, it's on Hulu. I've got Hulu. Yeah, really you to go, go look, for, look for it. You're gonna love it.
2: Wow! I mean, I got, I, Jim, have you designed the
0: box car Chris is not gonna make for uh, you yet. I, w- <laughs> I, I was thinking about mentioning it earlier, but no, I I, I, I thought better of it. No, I haven't um, designed that one yet. I've designed others, but not that one. But I uh, did just uh, just just today. It arrived. Uh I have my um CNC slash three D printer machine that I got off Kickstarter. Mm. Uh that I did quite certainly get it for it. I wasn't interested in supporting the product, I wanted it. <laughs> yes. oh. Well
3: you support it anyway, so Yeah.
0: So, it's all good. Uh, but you know, I, I think you know that's a little different because you know, it was, you know, we want to make this product, and you know, if you buy, if you spend this much money, then this is what you will get, and you know, that um, And unlike your project, which is you know, it's different. Right? You know, people that were looking to support it, they want to support it. They're you know, I don't care if I get a mug. A mug is nice, but you know, yeah, I just I just want to help.
3: It's not about the swag, it's about the the project, that's for certain.
0: Whereas my CNC machine, all about the swag. (laughs) Totally, 100% about the swag. It's 170 (laughs) pounds worth of swag. And when this thing came, and I'm opening the garage door, and the thing starts to fall over, I'm saying, I only have one good arm, Uh, this could be problematic. (laughs) This is awfully heavy. I'm glad it came in three boxes and not just.
2: It didn't fall over there. No, right?
0: as I, I well, one of them did. One of the pieces did, but it was the base, so it didn't really make any difference. This thing is. I I will say, without having looked at much of it, it seems extremely well uh, built. Um, you know, 170 pounds worth of this thing um, tells you something about the the quality of materials that you used in it. But no, I was able to catch the 70-pound the box before it fell over when the door opened.
3: Well, I hope was... you didn't have to pay for shipping for that.
0: I did. I did. That was part That was part of the Kickstarter. Okay. Oh, yeah, UPS. UPS, 140 yeah. or 170 pounds worth of shipping. Yeah, it weren't wow. cheap. Bet. But I got it in a day. Wow. They shipped it. They shipped it yesterday, and I got it today. Yeah, it took a long time, you know, because, you know, like a lot of other things, they were, it was a, it was an upgrade of an existing product that was very popular in Europe. So they made it, a, what the Kickstarter was for was to make it available in the United States and upgrade it. Uh, and they blew away their Kickstarter. Hundreds of thousands of dollars.
3: Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. You never know what's going to take off on Kickstarter. I think one of the biggest projects they ever had was about uh, potato making potato salad. I think they raised, like, millions of dollars <laughs> people contributed to this potato salad project. Really? Yeah, there are some weird ones that just catch fire online and just blow up for no known reason.
1: It's sort of like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He's building that that mashed potato <laughs> this thing means of,
3: means this something. means something you
0: know this means something <laughs> yeah, definitely yeah we we toy with you know we keep saying oh you know i want to go to portland i want to do this oh we ought to get a kickstarter together. kickstarter together send jim lincoln to the west coast
3: well it's funny right after like, i finished my kickstarter i got i guess this is kind of a whole new crowdfunding sort of uh, uh, different ways of doing crowdsourcing, uh, crowdfunding is just exploding everywhere. I got something called GoFundMe I think it's GoFund.me from one of my former students asking for money to finish her degree. So it's kind of <laughs> becoming a, a, a popular way of raising money for all sorts of things not just projects.
1: Hmm, interesting, I'll have to look into that. Well, Jim, we, we won't be sending you to the West Coast anymore because Paul yeah, and yeah. I will both be in the Midwest, and yeah. that is just hop on the Capital Limited, come on out to Chicago, I'll pick you up, and uh,
0: why would I get on we'll the we'll Capital Limited? There. Why would I get on the Capital? Why not? Why wouldn't I get on the Lake for Shore Limited?
1: Because I'm closer to Chicago yeah, than Paul I is really to really Chicago. Really no, no, what I
0: the Lake the, the Lake Shore Limited or the Lake for Shore Limited? Uh, leaves from Framingham, which is 17 miles away, and goes to Chicago. It goes where? The, the Lake Shore Limited. We call it the Lake for Shore Limited because it's always late.
1: <laughs> oh, uh, oh, very clever.
0: Yes. Um, uh, yeah, it takes three hours to drive. It takes three hours to drive to Albany or, like, seven to go by train. <laughs> um... Yeah, the Lake for Shore Limited uh, goes from uh, Boston to Albany and then out the, uh, the old New York Central, out to Chicago, through Cleveland. Oh,
1: okay. My in, bad.
0: In Cleveland. Yeah,
1: Cleveland. Uh, so, I, yeah. I stand corrected on that?
0: That's okay. No, the Capital Limited is out of uh, Washington, so I'd have to Washington, drive
1: that. It. That's right. Yeah, that, I went on that and was like through a snowstorm. It was quite... It was quite an interesting trip because it it was, like, snowing, like, crazy out. And here we are just hauling at, like, 80 or 90 miles per hour through the snowstorm. You know, like, I'm not used to this. (laughs) Like, 20 miles per hour through a snowstorm, or not at all. (laughs) Right. So it it was a really neat trip. And, hey, that's the the train that kind of stuck in my mind from, from that experience.
0: That's fine. As I recall, when you—that was when you
1: left um, uh, Springfield, right? Actually, it was yeah. uh, leaving Chicago to head out to Washington D.C.
2: Oh, And to, then heading to Washington down
1: Washington. to North Carolina okay. for the world's greatest hobby, and then I shot up to uh, ah, Springfield. Okay. And I went okay. on train on that one too, and that was that, going on the Northeast by train for the first time was just an incredible yeah. experience. You know, being on going to like New Haven where they switched out the locomotives for the electric one to the yeah, diesel one. Really it was just a neat experience. I I'm used to writing Amtrak on the West coast where it's like the Pacific Surfliner this, and you know, the San Joaquin that mm-hmm. it, it, it just didn't have the personality that the, the Northeast had as far as like the Amtrak service out there. It was really yeah. a neat, um, experience. Yeah, that's the uh, the one thing I will say about working
0: for the railroad around here, is uh, the Amtrak crews will normally let me ride to New York. I can get to New York and I can get to Albany for free. Uh, beyond that, I have to pay. So, and um, mainly because they ride our trains, <laughs> you know, they they ride our trains for free, so they're like, oh yeah, sure. Quid pro yeah. no quo. Yeah, but once you get down south of. You get south of New York City and a lot more of the officials ride the trains. And so the crews don't want to take the chance of letting you go for free. So, they they have a reputation of being less friendly. But I, I love the service. I mean, it's you, know, you, you ride in a, the Ampli cars, as old as they are. Um, it's like riding in first class on an airplane. You have a ton of legroom. It's comfortable. And yeah,
1: I'd say above first class. These things are so comfortable.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's just, I mean, the amount of legroom is, is is enormous. I, in some ways, I find a regular train more comfortable than an Acela. But I've never really ridden in a good seat in an Acello. For me to ride for free on an Acela, they stick me in the cafe car in one of those hard. He said, yeah, go to the cafe car, you're fine. So you're three and a half
1: hour cafe. Have as much water as you can drink.
0: That's right, that's right. I think they do, they, the, 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 yeah, you have to buy overpriced, nuked, overpriced, nuked food. That's one of the drawbacks. That's the one thing about when you get on a train that has a dining car, as the dining cars are normally, food's quite poor.
2: uh Yeah, I can s- support that. Never had a bad uh, meal on an Amtrak uh, diner.
0: Uh, you can in the cafes, but not the, the diners are always almost always. Yeah, no, full diner, full diner service, yes. And been, oh, I didn't have good food. Yeah, if, you, if they're if they're nuking it, no. And I th- I like the service in California, the the surf liner and all that stuff. It was quite pleasant. Although I think in comparison to those double deckers, the Am are more comfortable. They seem that way.
1: Yeah, they they seem that way to me too. And it's I think it's a lower center of gravity, you
0: know. I I I don't know. I you know I you know because they're more the the superliners would come. The surfliner cars were like,
1: me. Nee.
0: I mean, they look nice. They look nice. The seats look great and everything. But it's like you know they're more compute, they're more commuter than the uh, than the uh, are and the amphlets are
1: ancient, they're built in the 70s. Great shape, they keep, they keep the equipment in very good shape. Two words Pullman standard. Actually, I think those were done by Bud. I think so, yeah. You know,
0: the I think, are Bud, yeah.
2: Yeah, Amphlets and Bud. The superliners
0: are Pullman standard.
2: Yeah, late 70s when, uh, Pullman started doing the Superliners, the uh, AM fleets came out, what, in middle 70s?
1: Something like that. I mean, actually, the Amfleets were kind of a holdover from Penn Central, okay, based on the Metroliner.
2: Yeah. But they were actually done there in the middle 70s out of
0: Bud. Well, gee, that's just... Nice. Sweet. Still ride nice, oh, yeah, these, yeah. Uh, in comparison to our equipment, which is just garbage...
2: If I had a way of getting the Jeep to New Orleans, I could take uh, the route of the old Sunset out of uh, Maricopa all the way over there. But I don't think they uh, would check the Jeep into the baggage car. That
1: might be of a, pro- a bit of a process there.
2: Yeah, uh, I'm going to have to think that yeah. one through.
1: I could see him out there with the saws all on the side of the thing, you know, <laughs> just cutting the shape of a Jeep out so could stuff it in there. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> Or put high rail or wheels on the back and tail. Yeah, 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 exactly.
1: Yeah, you know, details.
2: <laughs> you won't find that at U-Haul, you know. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever watch Top Gear on uh, BBC America? Last night, I think it was last night, they had a, uh, BB, or a Top Gear uh, festival on, and this is over in England, and uh, there was an XKS Jaguar convertible which I think was a 70s-era car that somebody had put railer wheels on. And they're riding it around this uh, tourist road over in England. And, uh, I mean, it, it wouldn't, if he hit the throttle too much, needless to say, he could just smoke the tires to, to steel on steel. They tried to pull a small car with it and, you know, rail car, and it wouldn't, but, yeah, that's what made me think of just putting high rail wheels on the jeep and doing it. it,
0: it is that the it. episode where they, they were like they had a like a they had like a camper or something behind it? Yeah. So yes, I asked, yes, and asked, the train. They did see that.
2: First, they had a fire on one yeah. of them, and then they left it fouling a crossover switch. And a freight came by and nailed it. Funny show. Funny show. Yeah, Sarah's probably glossing over. <laughs> Yeah, well, we can wrap it up. I mean, Sarah's, uh, we're, you know, imposing upon her now while we ramble oh, it's, about it's right,
3: It's funny how many people, I think, through the the whole two years, the the greatest number of people who recognize the project and model citizens know it from this podcast. I know that there have been a couple other podcasts I've done, but mostly this one made people familiar with the project. And, you know, I understand that people... Listen to the podcast as they're working. So you know they're working for a couple of hours, and time flies. So it's really kind of great to. I can't imagine any other areas, very few other areas, where you would have a captive audience for such a long period of time, where people are really interested and engaged at length.
2: Yeah, brain surgery just doesn't hold the attention <laughs> like this does.
0: Well, I'm going to be driving out to. Uh...
1: I'm driving out to St. Louis for the weekend. Oh, you're going to be out here? St. Louis, yeah. Well, that's what I mean, because I'm going to be at St. Louis. Yes, I am going to. Be uh, so you can, like, harass me in person about no, a uh, Pullman standard boxcar you want? No, no, no. The <laughs> has that loss, it's less. Well,
0: as as you said, I now have a CNC machine, so I can make it myself.
1: I'm so proud of you. You're so taking nice. the initiative.
0: Ready to go, Jimbo. To go, Tim Lincoln. Woo! If I can figure out how to make the thing go, uh, but yeah, I pinged uh, Ken Patterson, and I don't even think he remembers who the heck I am. So, oh,
1: oh uh, he'll remember you. He'll be wanting you to like ha- come over and hand lay track.
2: Yeah. He was impressed with your your uh, mystique in track laying.
1: Yeah. I think there were a few explicitives that uh, uh, Paul had to edit out because of it.
0: Yeah,
2: oh, that's true. <laughs> oh yeah,
1: that was a oh, yeah. that was a heavily edited episode. Um, well, well, I'm glad to say, Jim, I'll be seeing you there.
0: Oh, okay, yeah. Um, I
1: wasn't
0: sure if you were going to, yeah. I'm actually, um, I'm driving. <laughs> I'm leaving tomorrow, driving six hours, then driving six hours, meeting some people in Indianapolis. Uh, there's actually a bunch of Proto Forty Eight layouts around in Indianapolis, and then. Um, going from there to St. Louis. I was kind of hoping to get invited over to Ken Patterson's
1: when I pinged him. Um, but I didn't I'll invite ask. you over.
0: I didn't, I didn't want to ask.
1: That's the thing. I didn't want to no, ask. you won't. You, I'm, I'm just going to haul you over.
0: Um, We're digressing. I'll be
3: happy to sign <laughs> off. Well, thank you so much for um, taking the time to talk with me and uh it's been a lot of fun, and um, I guess I won't see you guys in Portland, but uh let's stay in touch definitely
1: well there's mm-hmm. always Indianapolis
3: oh yes, and christopher i'm i'm I guess you would probably be the contact for the sound hunters. Uh, you so know, yeah. With sound hunters would be great.
1: Yeah, the the sound hunters, the structure hunters, and then the train hunters. So I
3: think it would be a great project. If you're interested, I'd love to uh, talk. I'm about. I'm
1: absolutely interested. We'll so talk some more about it.
3: Okay, you know where to reach me, and okay. uh, I'll talk to you guys later. Then I'll sign off.
1: All right. Have a great night, sir.
3: Have a good rest of the evening. Right.
1: Bye bye. That we can actually do this trip over Raton. So I'm really excited about it. She's really excited about it, and uh, we're, the reason why I'm not going to Portland is is because of this trip uh, out to California. I'm my mom's turning 70 at the end of this month, so happy birthday to mom. She does listen to the podcast, so. <laughs> nice. nice. Uh,
0: no, that's cool. I took that train when I went out to when I went to California, and I uh, that's the train I took. Uh, I took the Southwest Chief out and the and the Zephyr back. And the Zephyr at that time, the one out of L.A., because there was a Zephyr out of Oakland and a Zephyr out of L.A. and they met. I Forget where they met, but the
1: Zephyr
3: out of Salt LA. Lake. They
1: did. A, there was like a Desert Wind that went up from L.A. Yeah. to Salt Lake, and then they combined yeah. all three trains together with the Pioneer, the Zephyr. Yeah and the desert wind and it just me this gigantic Amtrak train.
0: And it used to stop at uh,
1: uh, Las Vegas. And they
0: don't have, there's no trains to go to Las Vegas anymore, is there? It?
1: No, it's a lowly Greyhound bus anymore. Ah, yeah. So, yeah, so I was, you know, when
0: people, you know, I'm not into gambling. I'm really not, I'm really not interested in visiting Vegas. And people are, oh, you're going to go visit Vegas. It's so awesome. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Um, so when the train stopped in Vegas, we were there for about half an hour, forty five minutes. And so I got off the train, walked around. So now when people say, So have you ever been to Vegas? Yes, I have. Yeah. That's right, I'm not lying. You know, I could I saw the strip. From a long way away, but I saw it. Did you see the strip? Oh yes, I did, yes. Wasn't
1: impressed. You, you know, I think what I recall from the desert wind, it's unfortunate that train's gone. It, it, it still kind of, like, boggles my mind. You, you think any sort of L.A. to Las Vegas connection would just be, like, gangbusters. But anyway, just the way the right-of-way is uh, situated, coming into Vegas, it, it just, you're, you're going through these mountains. And from the lounge car, I could see Las Vegas. Yep. Kind of illuminated in the distance yeah. from your lounge cars, you're cruising around these mountains and stuff. It was just such a neat trip, yes. and especially arriving fun. in Vegas at night, so it was just like just wow, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it'd be it'd be really cool if they ever resurrect that train to, mm. you know, experience that again. Yeah. Yep.
0: I mean, I I will say that the um, the Coast Starlight is, is a great trip. Um, very. Very scenic. I, I mean, I was very fortunate to be able to have a sleeper. So,
1: uh. you know, the sleeper is the way to go on any of the Amtrak yes. overnight routes. Uh, especially the Coast Like They have wine tasting. They have, you know, just the the extra Pacific Parlor car. Yeah, we didn't have that. This. Oh, that. You, oh, it, it's you're in the old Capitan, El Capitan car. You yeah. know, so it's just like so much cool sort of history, just being in some of these older, you know, railroad cars, uh, just like the Amfleet cars at this point. I remember thinking Amfleet cars was like, hey, this is a modern car, but you know what? I remember that, too. (laughs) I remember thinking they were modern. Yeah. 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 F40s were like, it. Oh, exactly. And now this is all, like, rare stuff. You know, so as things turn enjoy them while you can i mean go on some of these uh i i think iowa pacific runs a uh chicago to new orleans uh overnight train now well they they add a few cars to the original uh, uh, city of new orleans but i definitely want to get on that because they, they bring back the old pullman standard service you know i've I've never experienced that. I've all all I've ever experienced is Amtrak. I love Amtrak, but you know I, I want to try out some of that crack varnish um, service that I've heard so much about. You know. Yep.
0: Yep. Um. You, I mean, I've ridden trains in England, and those are, I mean, trains in England and in um, Austria, very nice.
1: Well, when you get situated out there in New Orleans, Paul, uh, my girlfriend and I, we'd love to come down and have dinner with you maybe one weekend. We'll leave Friday. Maybe we could do like Saturday night. Uh, the It'll rush us back by Monday morning, you know? So yeah. that's totally doable. And I, I would love a trip on the city of New Orleans. Never taken that trip. I've taken the Sunset Limited from like Los Angeles to New Orleans back in the nineties. And it was an absolute phenomenal trip, you know, and I, I can only imagine how this, this would be going from champagne down there. So...